would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 7 today, the first 17 verses. It's also printed for you on page 5 in your bulletins. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we ended uh, our end. We, we came to a conclusion of part of our series in 2 Samuel uh, just before Advent. We got through the end of chapter 6, then we had a few weeks of Advent where we were looking at how Jesus is proclaimed in the Old Testament, and now we're coming back to get into 2 Samuel, and we are beginning where we left off in chapter 7, verse 1. I'll begin reading there, and I'll read down through verse 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, which is David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my, over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, your written word. We thank you for all of it. And today we especially thank you for this chapter. We thank you for all that is contained in this chapter, and as we seek to meditate on it, would you prepare the hearts and the minds of all who are here, all who are online, and help us, Father, to receive your word as the Holy Spirit takes it and impresses it into us. 
Help us to grow in our understanding of you as the covenant-keeping God. A God who is ever faithful to your promises to your people. A God who showers us with steadfast love and grace. And as we meditate on these truths, pray that you would fill us with hope and strength, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of our Savior. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, listen to what some reputable Bible scholars and commentators have said about this chapter of the Bible. 2 Samuel 7, one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for our evangelical faith. The ideological summit of the entire Old Testament. The Lord's words recorded here arguably play the single most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. It is the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament. Now those are some high words of acclaim coming from some very reputable Bible scholars. Why is this chapter so important? That's what we're going to consider today and at least again next week. At the core, what we're going to see is that this chapter unfolds for us this picture of God being faithful to his covenant promises. A promise that he began, that he gave in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve that was repeated over and over again and unfolded as it was given to Noah and to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua, through the time of the judges, here with David, through the ministry of the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, and ultimately being fulfilled with the arrival of the one who was long promised, Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7 is the longest account of God speaking to his people since Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. And what the Lord tells his people here in this chapter about himself and about his covenant promises is meant to deepen our appreciation for and reliance on the word of God It is to help us to understand how we are to rightly think of God's blessings to us. And it is meant to completely overwhelm us with awe and thanksgiving for God's incredible plan of salvation. His never-ending pursuit of His people. So, to get at those truths, today I want us to look at three things. The first is to see the upside-down plan of the human heart. And then in contrast to that, we will look and we'll see what God tells us about his plan, a plan of steadfast love and grace. And then we'll conclude by considering the proper response to all of these things by God's people. So first of all, the upside down plan of the human heart. If you've been with us in our study thus far through the first six chapters of 2 Samuel, you know that there's been lots of action. There has been a lot of War, there's been a lot of battle, there's been a lot of bloodshed. But as we come to the end of chapter 6 and we begin chapter 7, we see that David has been crowned king over all of Israel. Jerusalem has been captured and made the capital city of the people of God. 
The Ark of the Covenant, which signifies the very presence of God, has been brought into Jerusalem, signifying God dwelling with his people. And as we begin chapter 7, we see in verse 1 that the king, King David, is now ha- he has a palace of cedar that has been built. And he has been given rest from his enemies and battles by the Lord. And he's experiencing, along with the people of God, a time of peace and comfort. He is experiencing the blessings of God. Now that leads David and Nathan to come up with a plan. We see that plan in verses 1 through 3. David looked around. He, he realized the Lord's blessings. He realized the Lord's comforts that he was experiencing. And he looks out from his palace of cedar and he's reminded of the dirty tent where the Ark of the Covenant is residing. And he feels the need to provide a permanent home for that ark. So he calls Nathan the prophet to get Nathan's opinion. And Nathan must have discerned David's heart. He must have discerned that David's heart was genuine because he told David to go and do what was in his heart. He gave him the green light to move ahead with the building project. Now, on face value... This seems like a good thing for David to do. It seems that he's honoring the Lord in what he's trying to do. It seems that there's a genuine desire for the Lord's glory. But if we will look just a little bit deeper, we look a little bit more carefully, what we're going to see is that David and Nathan's plan is backwards. They have an upside down plan. Now you can know that that's the case because of how God responded. Look again at verses 4 In following the same night that they had concocted the idea of building God a house that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And then down at the verse 11, the Lord continuing to speak, declares to David, The Lord will make you a house. You can see what the Lord is saying here. You think you're going to build me a house, David? You think you're going to build me a house? You've got it backwards. It's flipped upside down. I am going to make you a house. Now, what's going on here? I want you to notice very clearly in all other places, lots of other places in the Old Testament, even with David himself, when the king... Or the prophets come to make a decision, whether it's to go to war or whether it's to move the army or any decision. Often we are told they would go and seek out the Lord. They would go to seek what the Lord would have them to do. And notice there's none of that happening here. David didn't inquire of the Lord. Even the prophet Nathan didn't inquire of the Lord. Even though the desire might have been good, the decision that they came up with was based on human reasoning rather than God-given wisdom. 
The plan that they ended up with as a result focused not on what God was going to be doing for them, but on what they would try to do for God. And so God set the record straight. And he uses a play on words to do so. He says, I don't need you to build me a house, a temple. Instead, David, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you a dynasty. I'm going to make you a kingdom. Here we see the bent of every human heart. The the upside down way of thinking about God. Where we focus first and foremost on what we will do for God. What we will accomplish in our efforts. And even after we've become a Christian, this is still a bent of the heart that we must lean against. Otherwise, we will get the gospel and God's glory upside down. The gospel and God's glory is not about what we do to earn God's acceptance, his approval or love. It's not about what we are going to do to accomplish for the sake of God's glory and his kingdom. The gospel and God's glory is about what the Lord God Almighty is going to do for us and in us and through us. And the need that we have to rely on God's word for wisdom. This is the upside down plan of the human heart. And in contrast to that, God lays out his plan, his plan of steadfast love and grace. He lays out his faithfulness to his covenant promises. And as we look at these verses, verses six through 16, we get this incredible picture of the faithfulness of God to his promises. You can see it several different ways. You can see it, first of all, because he reminds David and Nathan of the fact that God is present with his people. That's what he was saying in verses 6 and following as he reminds David. David, I've always been with my people. When I led them out of Egypt, I was with them. When I led them through the Red Sea, I was with them. When they went into the desert wilderness for a generation, I was with them. And he reminds David, David, I came to you and called you out of the pasture where you were watching over the sheep. And I am now making you the prince, the king of my people. God is always present with his people. If David and Nathan could so easily forget that, I think we can also acknowledge it's something that we easily forget as well. And yet, as God's people here and now, we have an even clearer statement of this truth. That God is with us. That the presence of God is with his people. Jesus and the New Testament writers told us that if we are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in us. God is with us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a Christian, the Lord God Almighty is with you. Whether in good times or in difficult times, he is always with you. He has always been with his people. When you feel alone, he is with you. When you're in a moment of doubt and despair, he is with you. When you are afraid and anxious, he is with you. In your moments of temptation, he is with you. And even in those moments when you can't feel the presence of God, when he feels far away, The truth is different than your feeling. The truth is that God is present with his people. It shows us his faithfulness to his covenant promises. 
We see that by God being present with his people, but God also explains to David and Nathan his provision for his people. We see that in verses 11 and following as he continues to, as the Lord continues to speak to David. He tells David that the, the Lord declares to at the end of verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. Now, as is often the case with prophecies in the scriptures, the prophecy given often had a partial fulfillment in the lives of the people who were hearing it, and then a more complete and full fulfillment sometime later in the future when Christ would come. And such is the case here with this passage. The Lord is promising David that he would make David a house. He would make David a a, a dynasty, a lineage. He's telling David that he was going to build a kingdom through his lineage. That one of David's sons would come and that son would be the one to build a temple for the Lord. The Lord would be faithful to that son. Even when the son sinned against the Lord, the Lord would discipline him as a father does a children. But he would not take his steadfast love away from him. All of this has been fulfilled with David's son Solomon. Solomon indeed built the temple. A place for God's people to gather to worship the Lord. Solomon sinned against the Lord clearly. And the Lord disciplined Solomon clearly. But he didn't remove His steadfast love from him. So this is being partially fulfilled in David's son, Solomon. But I want you to notice that there are parts of this prophecy that Solomon couldn't fulfill. Look again at verses 12 and 13 and verse 16. We're told over and over again in those three verses that indeed the kingdom that would come as a result of David's son would be a kingdom that is everlasting. It would be a kingdom that would be forever. It is a kingdom that would be sure. That didn't take place with Solomon's kingdom, with Solomon's kingship. And so what we see here is not just that there was a partial fulfillment with the son of David, Solomon. But this is pointing forward to something that's bigger, something that is greater, the greater and the the, the greater son of David. Jesus Christ. I want you to look and notice how many of these verses, the things in these verses describe Jesus, the greater and ultimate son of David. When the Messiah arrived, when Jesus was born, he was declared to be God's own son. That's how the gospel of Mark begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Not only was Jesus the Son of God, it was Jesus' mission to build a true and ultimate house for the Lord. Not a building, but a people. As we read verse 12 and the Lord's promise that as David died and went into the ground, God would raise up a descendant. He would raise up Solomon to carry on the kingdom. 
we remember how Jesus too was raised up from the grave in resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the very essence of God's steadfast love that God says He would not remove from His Son. And Jesus now sits on an eternal throne with a kingdom that has been made sure and everlasting forever. It's through Jesus that God's people have true rest. Everlasting rest. And then when we come to the New Testament, we come to Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Peter talks about David as he's preaching the gospel to the people in Acts chapter 2. He says, remember our father David, patriarch David. He died. His tomb is right over there. We can go look at it. But God swore a promise that he would set one of David's descendants on the throne, Peter said. And we know that that was none other than Jesus Christ, who's been crucified and resurrected. Do you see how important these words are in 2 Samuel verse chapter 7? God is telling David about the gospel of God's steadfast love and grace. He's unfolding God's plan not to have a people that would try to do something for him to earn his approval, but something that he would do for his people. A greater work by far, a work of redemption for them. The long promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come into this world and live a life of perfect love and obedience to his Father. He would demonstrate what true, steadfast love looks like. He would give his life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of his people and to credit them with his righteousness so that then we as his people would be adopted into the household of God as God's children. We would have God as our father. We would be loved with a steadfast love that would never be taken away. We would be raised up to new life to live with our savior forever in his eternal kingdom of heaven. God is showing his faithfulness to his covenant promises to David and to us, not only by reminding them that God is present with his people, but also that he has made a provision for them. And you can also see God reminding them of the faithfulness to his promises here in verses 9 through 16. Remember that God made a promise to Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden. After they sinned, Genesis chapter 3, the promise of the Redeemer who would come. And slowly, over generations of His people, God would give more and more details of that promise. The promise that was given to Adam and Eve and was then retold to Noah and to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and the prophets and even John the Baptist and then was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Himself. He was reminding them here in, the, in these verses that the promise that he made was a promise that nothing, would go, nothing could be taken away from them. Nothing could cause the promise to, not, or to come not true. Not death. David would die. Solomon would die. But God said he would raise up a line and preserve that line so that Jesus eventually would come in the line of David. Sin couldn't even conquer God's promise. David sinned. Solomon sinned. But God's steadfast love and grace would cover them. And then when Jesus would come and live a sinless life, we would have forgiveness of our sins forever through Him. 
Not even time could conquer God's faithfulness to his promises. David's kingdom would come to an end. Solomon's kingdom would come to an end. But in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is everlasting. You see this incredible contrast between the upside down plan of the human heart and God's plan for working for his people. His faithfulness to his covenant promise of steadfast love and abundant grace. He reminds them of his presence, of his provision, and of his promises that are faithfully fulfilled. Dr. Ralph Davis tells a fun story in his commentary on 2 Samuel. And with stories like this, there's always a mixture of truth and fiction. This story is about an 18th century Scottish pastor named Aeneas Sage. Now that part is true. I actually looked it up. Aeneas Sage was a pastor in the 18th century in Scotland. And we're told that Pastor Sage was a a man of great, strong faith. But he was also a man of great, strong stature. Many were intimidated by his physical dimensions. In the little small town where he pastored, there was one family, one household that was particularly known for being pagan. Pastor Sage decided that he would confront the man of the house. He told his congregation that he was going to start a catechism class and he was going to hold the class in that man's house. So he showed up at the man's house and knocked on the door. The man came to the door and obviously wondered why the pastor of the town was there. And Pastor Sage said, I have come to discharge my duty to God, my duty to your conscience, and my duty to my own. Whereby the man of the house responded, I care nothing of those three. Get out of my house or I'll turn you out. Pastor Sage simply responded, if you can. What followed was what some have referred to as a catechism preparation meeting that took place between the powerful pastor and the pagan man of the house. And the result was that the pagan man of the house ended up lying on the floor with rope around his hands and his feet. And Pastor Sage called for the people of the town to come to the house, and he taught them the shorter catechism, we're told, with nobody refusing to come. Now, I don't think that's a good recommended way for catechizing your neighbors of doing evangelism, but we can say that Second Samuel 7 has an Aeneas Sage tone about it. God's plan is unstoppable. He is completely faithful to His covenant promises. There is nothing that can prevail against God fulfilling His promise of steadfast love and grace to His people. And so as we get that into our hearts and our heads, we might ask, well, how should we respond? Three things as we leave this morning. The first is this. As God's people understand God's plan and His faithfulness to His covenant promises, it ought to move God's people to give God all glory. Glory for His faithfulness to His covenant promises. It should, this passage should move God's people to a sense of wonder and awe of our God. To worship Him and to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. There is no other God like this one true Lord God Almighty. 
Who could have ever come up with a plan of redemption like this, where the God of creation would enter his creation to do a work of redemption for his people? And as we, as we are moved to marvel and to give God glory for this wonderful faithfulness to his covenant promises, it ought to also fill us with hope and strength and encouragement. If God has done all of this, if God has gone to this extent to secure a people of his own, if he has been faithful all this time, then we can know with certainty that He will be faithful to us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is true for you. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That is true for you. When you feel alone, when you are lonely, when you are afraid or anxious or fearful, the Lord is with you. He will sustain and protect you. When you doubt that the Lord could forgive you one more time for your besetting sins, the Lord speaks his faithful promise to you that in Christ your sins are forgiven and he will cleanse you from your unrighteousness. When the governing authorities and our parents and our children and our spouses and our employees and our employers let us down, King Jesus is still on the throne. The sovereign Lord God Almighty is still in control. He is ruling his kingdom forever. We can put our hope in him. So the first takeaway for God's people is that we should give God all of the glory for His faithfulness to His covenant promises and as a result to be filled with hope, strength, and encouragement. A second thing is that we ought to be very careful about getting too comfortable with God's blessings. David does actually give us a good example here in one way, something that we should follow. God had brought David through trials and warfare and bloody battles. He had fulfilled the promise to make David the king. He had established him in Jerusalem. He had enabled the palace of the king to be built. And he gave David rest. David and all of Israel rest from their enemies. The Lord had graciously and generously blessed David. And notice, David didn't just sit back and enjoy those blessings all for himself. Although he may not have gone about it quite the right way, he wanted to use God's blessings to him to honor the Lord and to bless others. I'd invite you to consider how God has richly blessed you. What are the ways that God has blessed you? Maybe financially, maybe with health, vocational success. The, the peace and the unity and large measure that we have in our church family. Our salvation that is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And many other blessings in addition. And as God's people, we must be careful not to take those blessings for granted. To just sit back and be comfortable with the Lord's blessings to us. 
God's blessings to us are meant to be enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with finding joy and comfort in the blessings of God. But they are also meant to move God's people to honor the Lord and to use those blessings to bless others. So as we begin this new year and as you meditate on the many ways that God has and is and will be blessing you, I would challenge you to think of those blessings and then to figure out ways that you can use them for the glory of God and for the good of others. And then lastly, in response to this wonderful plan of God's faithful promises, God's people ought to rely on God's word, not just our human wisdom. If David gave us a good example of not just resting comfortably in the blessings of God, but using them to honor God and to bless others, he also gave us a bad example of relying on human reason more than God's word. We read in Timothy that the word of God is profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, for our training in righteousness so that we can be complete And equipped for every good work. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the word of God is profitable? It's profitable for you as God's people that you might be reproved by it and corrected by it. That you might be trained in righteousness and complete and equipped. Assuming that you believe that that is true. How does your life prove that you believe it? What role does God's word play in your life other than just on Sundays? How well do you know the word of God? If 2 Samuel 7 shows us anything, it shows us the importance of knowing the storyline of God's covenant. What are you doing to learn the word of God better? And what are the ways that you're relying more and more on God's word for guidance and direction in your life? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you in your providence that you had this wonderful truth of your promise to David written down in such a way and preserved in such a way that we could read it so many years later. And Father, there is such a richness here as we unpack your faithfulness to your promises to your people. And I pray that as we as we just begin to scratch the surface of the depth of your promises, of the depth of your faithfulness. I pray that you would move in us and fill us with a hope in this world as we have a hope that transcends this world. That as we live in this world, we would live as a people that are pleasing in your sight. A people that you would use to proclaim the grace and truth of your word to the world. Help us, Father, help us to believe what we read in your word and so change us as a result. Make us more and more as the people you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.